Hi, and welcome to the Unfiltered podcast with me, Emma Saunders. Join me on a journey to go behind the facade of the ever-present, false and glossy portrayal of the perfect life. Hi, and welcome to the podcast, Been So Tired. My name is Naftal Benesty, and I'm Dutch. This podcast is about my journey coming off of benzodiazepines and more. Disclaimer, always consult your physician for medical advice. This is episode 24, Shane Kelly's The Benzodiazepine Medical Disaster, featuring Emma from the podcast Unfiltered. And today it's February 14th, 2023. In this episode, Shane Kelly's The Benzodiazepine Medical Disaster. Its initial release was in 2016. Links to the full documentary, which is around 52 minutes, will be in the description. I've taken the liberty to isolate around 30 minutes of audio from the documentary, which you will hear shortly. After the excerpts, I am joined by the lovely Emma, featured in an earlier episode, and she is from Beating the Benzo and her podcast, Unfiltered and we discuss our take on the documentary. Home of Professor Heather Ashton, who has become a veritable angel of the North for those who have suffered and are still suffering from the terrifying nightmare caused by taking benzodiazepines. Valium, Ativan, Xanax, Clonopin, and hundreds of others prescribed by their doctors. The many side effects are painful and agonizing and can last for years, perhaps permanently. There's evidence pointing to brain damage, which the drug companies, health agencies and governments ignore. Professor Ashton is joined by another leading international expert, Professor Malcolm Lader, OBE, in giving exclusive interviews for this documentary, helping to expose this disgraceful scandal, which has persisted for over half a century. It's a medical disaster. We have had many before, and we'll have many again. But at least we can try and rectify that disaster, or at least rectify the effects of that disaster. It is a medical disaster. It's a pandemic, actually. It's like an illness all over the world uh, of overprescription of drugs. And the reason is partly because doctors don't think what they're prescribing number one, number two, pushing by the drug companies, number two, and number three, not enough research. At the present moment, we have this large group. We've got to try and set up facilities to help them come off the medication if they want. We need to develop alternative methods of treatment which don't expose people to pharmacological dangers Uh, and we need to compensate them if we've made a mistake. In Newcastle, Professor Ashton set up a clinic for benzodiazepine victims. The drugs are anxiolytic and hypnotic, relieving acute anxiety and insomnia. But disastrously, the actual use has been extended by doctors, used as a muscle relaxant and for pains, sports injuries, normal life stresses like bereavement, tinnitus, and in my case, it was for Meniere's disease, an inner ear problem. 
Despite overwhelming evidence of dangers, doctors, health authorities and governments have failed to protect citizens from this crime against humanity. Unbelievably, after more than 50 years, new victims worldwide every year are being led by their doctors into this vortex of pain and suffering, completely avoidable if prescribing is sharply curtailed by law and patients by law are clearly and strongly warned of the dangers. This was a real, and still is, a real tragedy. As I say, people lose their jobs, their income, their, their relationships, their marriages. What we need, I think, is you know, some, a wake-up call uh, where we find people who are showing signs of brain damage, even if it's just functionally to start with, and that this would um, act as a catalyst. Drug companies now do list a lot of side effects, but what they don't tell you is that for a significant number of benzodiazepine sufferers, potentially millions worldwide over half a century, the symptoms, particularly the physical and painful, do not go away and can be crippling for years. In some cases, I think you suggested it was uh, 10 to 15% uh, of those suffering from uh, withdrawal symptoms. Uh, they have protracted withdrawal symptoms. The, the symptoms go on for longer than a year and sometimes for years and possibly even permanently. Yes, uh, that's only an estimate though. Um, there were some who didn't um, uh, seem to recover fully, but most of them lost their anxiety. But there were people who still had muscle pains, muscle spasms, mostly physical things actually, but they'd lost their anxiety and depression and um, nightmares and all those. Uh, the mental systems went, but the physical symptoms tended to be long-term. Yes, now this is even more contentious, what we call the persistent withdrawal syndrome. And we described that, and so did Heather Ashton, many years ago, and we were concerned about this. Now, I laid down quite firm criteria I said that this would have to be a condition in which somebody stopped the medication, developed a withdrawal syndrome with the symptoms I've just mentioned, but those symptoms persisted. I didn't see this coming on as a separate uh, syndrome later with a gap of uh, symptom-free, but there are variations on this. Some people do get permanent, uh, what feels like permanent sy symptoms. We don't know the causes of them. Nobody's ever looked at them. Uh, so we just need to do some research on that, but we haven't. In the 1980s, you told the BBC that uh, withdrawing from benzodiazepines was much more difficult than withdrawing from heroin. Yes, that's true. And I would often, in uh, collaboration with some colleagues, take people who had addiction problems with the benzodiazepines, but also addiction problems with heroin or cocaine or whatever, amphetamines, uh, and we found that uh, it was actually easier for people to withdraw from heroin um, with help uh, than it was for them to come off the benzodiazepines. What was the response to those remarks? Oh, I think it was just <coughs> generally disbelief. Everybody thinks it's very difficult to get off heroin. Yet people are doing it all the time. They're admitted to uh, uh, prison and they go, even go cold turkey, but usually there's some help. 
Um, so it's not that difficult to come off heroin. Um, benzodiazepines can be much more uh, of a problem, particularly in the minority, which uh, I've mentioned, that um, have uh, severe withdrawal reactions and may become persistent. And you referred in your recent paper that you've written about benzodiazepines, you referred to um, those people suffering an agony. Is that the way it appeared to you when you were listening to case histories being described to you? Um, because people do say it's like going through hell, and I experienced this myself. Yes, I think that's so. I think the people who are getting a severe reaction, the symptoms are so complex, they're so diffuse, so persistent, they're so interfering with day-to-day -day life that they are uh, an agony. But I emphasize that most people don't get to that degree of severity. But Professor Lader and others say that the minority who can have a severe reaction could be up to 30%. The symptoms are myriad. In her clinic, Professor Ashton recorded the many distressing conditions. Pain, limbs, back and neck. Pain, teeth and jaw. Paresthesia, stabbing pins and needles. Limbs and face. Stiffness, limbs, back and jaw. Tremor, muscle pain, twitches. Dizziness, tinnitus. Hypersensitivity to sound, light, touch and taste. Fits, seizures, anxiety depression, poor memory and concentration, insomnia, nightmares, hallucinations, agoraphobia and other phobias, panic attacks and palpitations, abdominal pain, diarrhea, constipation. All patients complained of difficulty walking. This appeared to result from a combination of sensory disturbance, muscle weakness, pain and stiffness. Pain in various parts of the body was prominent neck pain and occipital headache, pain in the limbs described as aching, bursting, cutting, were all common and often severe. Paresthesiae, all patients had feelings of pins and needles, tingling, crawling in the skin, numbness or altered sensation at some time, usually affecting the limbs in a glove and stocking distribution. As the eminent Irish expert, Dr. John O'Connor, says about benzodiazepine withdrawal, the body becomes its own personal torture chamber. Can you describe, in simple terms, what is happening in our brains with these psychoactive drugs? Well, uh, the benzodiazepines enhance the actions of a, an important neurotransmitter, that's a chemical in the brain, uh, that normally has an inhibitory or calming effect. And so the way they work initially is very clever uh, because they just give you, they up this effect of calming all over the brain. So they relieve tension, they affect balance like alcohol, and they affect thinking and sensations and brain function everywhere. And then, uh, but the body is much cleverer than people think because it says, hey, there's, uh, there's a foreign body here, a thing called a benzo. Um, I'm going to adapt to it. And so they downregulate these receptors. And in the end, uh, it's, the drug doesn't work anymore because they've, take, they've stopped this enhancement. And so the patient starts to get withdrawal symptoms, saying, hey, I need some more of that stuff. So 
very often the dose has to be escalated to get the same effect. And if it isn't, people get what are withdrawal symptoms, even though they're on the same dose. Is that common? Have you come across those suffering from uh, withdrawal symptoms? And of course, if you are suffering withdrawal symptoms before you have stopped taking benzodiazepines and then you want to stop taking benzodiazepines so that you can recover, you're obviously going to go through a really horrible time, yeah. torrid time, while you're getting there, uh, stopping taking benzodiazepines. Well, it gets worse unless you do it very, very gradually. And this, again, what, what the, um, the Goethe detoxes, uh, they've got lots of detox players in America, they take you off quickly. Well, that's hopeless because it doesn't give you time to get the equilibrium to swing back. After over 50 years, benzodiazepines are still prescribed carelessly, negligently and inappropriately. Roche discovered and launched the first, Librium, in 1960, and then ignored a grim warning about its dangers two years before selling Valium. Professor Lader takes up the story of the man who discovered benzodiazepines. A man called Leo Sternbach, who was Polish, and in the 1930s he was working for Roche. Uh, and was synthesizing various compounds and examining them for effect on the body and the brain. He didn't find a great deal, so he stopped working on them. And then when the problems, the Nazis came into power, uh, Roche were taking their Jewish uh, staff, and Leo Sternbach was Jewish, uh, out of Europe and uh, relocating them in the United States. So Leo Sternbach went to the United States and looking for something to do, he picked up these compounds again and uh, tried various substitutions in them. They were quite complex. And then eventually discovered a compound which he called metaminodiazepoxide, a long name which then changed to chlordiazepoxide, and we know it better as Librium. And he established its effect in animals and then uh, quickly in humans and uh, decided they had a very good tranquilizer and it became very popular very quickly indeed. But there was some research done on Librium even before Valium was developed in 1961 by a man called Hollister. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, well, uh, yes, I knew Leo Hollister. He was, uh, uh, I think he's dead now, but he was um, concerned about the about Librium was concerned that he didn't believe it was devoid of addiction properties and he did a study which I suppose now we would regard as unethical where he practically force-fed Librium to some uh, inmates in a prison in the United States and they became addicted and then he stopped it and uh, there were major side, major problems, major side effects. I think one or two of them actually had epileptic fits. Uh, and he warned that this was going to be a problem in the future. And that was 1961, and they'd just been on the drugs for two months? They'd been on for two months. This was 1961, and the paper was published in a journal called Psychopharmacology. Why did you establish your clinic dealing with uh, benzodiazepines in the first place? People taking the benzodiazepines, many of them by that time had taken it long term, 
uh, years and years. I mean, I've seen people who've been on it for 20 years or more. And they realized that after a while, the drugs didn't work anymore. And not only that, they were getting iller. And the patients that were referred to me were referred by the doctor because they said, look, there's something wrong with these drugs. I'm getting worse instead of better. We were interested in the effects um, long-term of benzodiazepines and also we were running a clinic here for people and we were getting increasing number of referrals for people who said they could not come off the benzodiazepines because of a variety of symptoms. Uh, we discussed this and assumed that they had uh, pushed the dose up. They hadn't. So this is how we first got the idea of normal dose iatrogenic dependence. What people said when they tried to stop was really firstly that their anxiety or their insomnia or their tensions came back and were worse. But also they got new symptoms and these were particularly perceptual symptoms as we call them so that you got people saying that um, sounds were very loud that lights were very bright, that they felt unsteady, uh, that they had pains uh, and uh, ringing in the ears and things of that sort. But in the 1980s there was first a trickle and then a stream and finally a river of people all wanting to get off the benzodiazepines and that's how it started uh, and it fell to me because I was interested in what was causing this. That, um, that I got involved in it. What kind of symptoms were people suffering from when they came to your clinic? Well, all sorts of things. Um, they were very, very anxious, all of them. And I think that's what, or most of them, put off the doctors. And they, have, they couldn't sleep, and they got nightmares and dreams, and they were jittery, and some of them had a tremor. They developed agoraphobia, social phobias, some of them paranoid, some of them very um, uh, angry, sort of rage, and with sensory disturbances, so that um, lights seem too bright, the room walls seem to be sloping, you know, all these sort of strange things. Some of them were afraid they were going mad, and um, sounds too bright, and tinnitus, their ears ringing, and all sorts of things. And in addition to that, tremors and um, muscle spasms, patches of numbness, muscle pains, muscle jerks, uh, a whole host of symptoms, both physical and mental. And um, But I had patients who'd been told they had multiple sclerosis and were doomed for life. And you got them off the benzos and the symptoms <laughs> disappeared. So, you, you know, it became clear it was due to the drugs. We had one or two cases where people had epileptic fits, which you might expect, and of course that harks back to Hollister's study. But by and large, it was just this terrible uh, hypersensitivity and also a general feeling of being very unwell, not functioning properly. If you stop benzo suddenly, uh, you get fits and it can kill you, uh, incidentally. Uh, so that's why you have to withdraw slowly. Some of these symptoms were really terrifying for the people suffering them. 
Uh, and in some cases, people were actually becoming disabled. Isn't that the case? Oh, it certainly was. I mean, because these symptoms could be quite overwhelming, were very severe. Um, there were even suicides. People got very depressed and um, led to the breakup of families, marriages, leading, you became impossible to work. You lost your job. You lost your income very often, uh, and uh, also it was difficult to get any um, compensation because nobody realised it was a real illness. Professor Lader has described this as a medical disaster. Would you agree? Yeah, th this was a real, and still is, a real tragedy. Uh, but just to be clear on the issue, um, you say that at the same time, not very many facilities were being pro provided around the country to look after these people. Uh, and these people were measured in hundreds of thousands, millions? Well, we think uh, from the GP studies, uh, at least millions in the country. And so the patients themselves usually started setting up their own support groups. And it was they, and still is, <laughs> support groups who get more people off and give them more support than any doctor because uh, there are no NHS clinics now. One of the difficulties in getting people to focus on the dangers of benzodiazepines appears to be the fact that some people can get off the drugs relatively easy while others suffer terrible agony. Yes, and the, the point is that if we could predict who is going to withdraw easily and who is going to go through agonies, we could reserve the benzodiazepines, which do have some positive effects, just for those who are not going to run into problems. But we can't predict, and therefore you have to look at the totality of the distress that is caused. In the back of my mind that these people are taking their benzodiazepines for many years, decades, maybe it's having an effect on the brain as well. So we used the uh, imaging techniques available at the time and looked at a group of patients who hadn't abused alcohol but had been on benzodiazepines for a long time. And we found some anomalies, some abnormalities which concerned us. And we thought view the extent of usage of these benzodiazepines. There are millions of people, literally, who might be at risk, and we needed to go into this in more detail. Uh, so we, I asked for the Medical Research Council to look into this, and they agreed and set up this uh, subcommittee, which met, and we looked at the evidence. A report went to the Neurosciences Board of the Medical Research Council, but nothing further was done about it. Can you understand why the results of that meeting, the record of that meeting, uh, was kept secret for three decades? Well, it wasn't secret in the sense that we weren't uh, adjured to secrecy, there was no official secrets act, and I was very surprised to find out later that those minutes hadn't been released. So. I don't know what was, what was going on, but there was concern about it. And I know that uh, I think Professor Heather Ashton, and I'm sure you'll ask her that, she also put forward a proposal which was turned down. 
Both you and Professor Lader put research proposals to the Medical Research Council. He wanted to investigate um, some prima facie evidence he had of structural damage to the brain from uh, benzodiazepines. Uh, you wanted to follow up um, uh, with a research group based on well, your clinic and a proposal to put yes. to the Medical Research Council for a, a very authoritative study, and they turned them, that as well. We never got money for it. I had a very good um, sample of people because I had 300 patients at that clinic who followed for several years. I knew all their brothers, sisters, spouses, you know, people who'd had a similar upbringing so that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't say, oh, well, it, you know, you, you're not select, you've got a selective group. And so people who, 300 who were on benzos, 300 relatives or spouses who weren't, we could have done MRIs. We, uh, studies on that for structural things. We could have done a lot of um, cognitive tests to see if they were impaired because something I haven't mentioned, which is perhaps the greatest tragedy of all, is when people are on benzos, they are, um, their thinking is impaired and they're prone to traffic accidents, making bad decisions, all sorts of things, poor memory. And, um, so we, we could have looked for that, see if that recovers. Um, and other th things with um, looking at brain function with uh, things like EEG and magnetoencephalography as well, which are ways of looking at actual, the way that neurons in the brain are firing. We could have done all that on a large number of patients. And I tried the MRC and the Wellcome Research Council and the Medical Research Council and the Welcome never got the money for it. I don't think it was considered as a serious enough condition. I don't know why. In Newcastle, Professor Ashton wrote her now famous manual on benzodiazepines, describing the symptoms and showing how to withdraw slowly. It's free on the internet. A book could have made her a fortune. It's the Bible worldwide for victims of doctor-induced benzodiazepine illness. Professor Ashton became a medical advisor and friend to victims everywhere. This is a bound volume of some of the thousands of letters and emails she's received from all over the world, made by a grateful patient. The consultant who recommended I take Valium for Meniere's disease brushed aside my concern, saying it was a most malign drug that could be a preventative against Meniere's attacks. He stopped prescribing Valium for Meniere's now, a lesson learned at a huge cost to me. When I started getting darting pains in my legs, I searched the web and in shock found the Ashton Manual, which explained what was happening to me. You wrote the Ashton Manual, which was published on the web. It's about benzodiazepines, how they work, and also about how to withdraw from uh, benzodiazepines. Why did you do that? Was it in response to a very big need? Well, yes, uh, because the patients seemed to know more than the doctors. They, all of them said the reason they'd come here was because they got no help from their GP or from a psychiatrist. I had patients referred from psychiatrists even. And they, the patients seemed to know better than the doctors. And so I wrote that manual for patients who couldn't get help from their doctors. It was for them, and the interesting thing is, although patients all over the world have snapped it up, the doctors still don't read it. 
actually one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that um, the in all the literature telling you how to prescribe drugs they all say that benzodiazepines are for short-term use only uh, two to four weeks maximum and even the company that makes them says that but it's just that nobody takes any notice how many languages is it translated into now uh, well it's over 12 over, over 12 <laughs> there's, there's a japanese one uh, there's all the all european languages it has been used by literally millions of people all, well, all over I the world i presume so yes uh, i mean if you look at the prescription levels uh, interestingly japan has the highest in the world <laughs> prescription levels at the moment of benzodiazepines and they're lapping it up and you know all these things have been translated by people um, voluntarily i mean they've never been paid for it or anything like that i suppose suicide is a possible outcome and i think it's more of it is maybe hidden because people don't try and come off the medication, don't come off the tranquilizers. They think it's helping them and they go on and in fact they, they go to the grave with a bottle of tablets beside them. I think it's that, that's where the hidden amount is. It's you don't know that you've got problems until you try and stop. Well, dr drug companies are a business. And when we, medic, many medical students do actually go into drug companies. They've got far more facilities than these. And we always used to say, oh, you're going to sell your soul. They do sell their souls. And the drug companies are there to make money. I don't think they have any more scruples than tobacco companies, which are already making a great fuss about smoking. And the drink, drinking uh, uh, industry, they're all making a terrible fuss if anybody tries to stop them. So I don't think drug companies would fund it. Yes, the problem is that most of these tranquilizing sleeping tablets are out of patent, which means that there's no um, profit left in the uh, drugs. Now, the only financial incentive which would come would be if there's a lot of medical legal cases uh, which uh, develop so that people are beginning to sue uh, because they've gone through a withdrawal reaction. But there are cases now which are coming through. Now, I predict that if those cases are successful, and so far they really haven't come to court, we will find that the um, doctor's organisations will start to issue warnings that long-term prescription is not acceptable. This is what we call ex-label prescribing. In other words, it's not covered by the license which the medication is given when it is authorised. So I think that might be a development, that there will be a tightening up, but it will be imposed on the medical profession by the legal profession. Lawyers are looking for personal injury cases, and if they can tap into this, get a few um, cases in which the judge is on the uh, claimant's side, that is the patient's side, you could open floodgates of everybody who's been on medication beyond the licensed month or whatever, uh, threatening to sue their general practitioners. And that again, I think, or the National Health Service, of course, that again, I think, would be uh, a major development. But I don't see many signs of that. It's, 
There's starting to be cracks in the dam, but they're not large yet. So we're doing a redo on the episode because I had some glitches on my end, apparently, where I sounded like a chipmunk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but on speed. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely. So uh, we're <laughs> discussing the documentary, The Benzodiazepine Medical Disaster by Shane Kelly. Um, I found the documentary in my acute withdrawal, um, and I saw the thumbnail of Heather Ashton, Professor Heather Ashton. I was like, oh, I know her from the manual. And that's how I got to see it for the mm-hmm. first time. When was our first time seeing it? Mm-hmm. Um, my first time seeing what? Sorry, the, the documentary. Yes. Yeah, well, actually, when you sent it to me, I was shocked. I was like, oh, my God, this is a really decent, very, very, like, full of, inf- rich of information. Like, you know, you'd, I'd watch that and be like, wow, this is happening in the world. I was shocked that I'd never seen it before um, because, obviously, I've been through benzo withdrawal and I Googled, you know, for hours on end and I never came across it. Yeah, it's interesting how we find certain things. And then recently I found the other documentary called Ada versus Adavan, which Mm. was also very fascinating, which we also discussed. Um, Let's see some of the topics that they, well, they touch every topic, in my opinion. I was like, it's so informative and I would recommend everyone to see it. So what were a few of the things that stood out for you from the documentary? Well, I mean, they cover like everything and it's all completely true. And I just wish everyone would watch this documentary and and care. Um, Because for me, what really stands out is like the fact that this was filmed, you know, a while ago and this is still happening now and nothing has changed. Um, I just find it so shocking. And also because I was met with so much disbelief from my family and from every single doctor I went to. Until I found, you know, a psychiatrist who was knowledgeable about all of this, which is incredibly rare to find. So it's all still happening and doctors are still saying that it's not happening. And it's it's just really disturbing. And it's really heartbreaking because I think in the documentary, it goes through the fact that, you know, people lose their family and their friends and their entire lives com- completely disintegrate because of this awful drug withdrawal that they end up in. Um, I mean, it covers so many points. And I think for me, the the most shocking thing is that people still don't know about this. (laughs) Yeah, me too. And um, just the fact that it was made in 2016. Mm. I think you mentioned in our previous take um, something about you you hadn't seen this on Channel 4 and you would have watched it even if you weren't aware about benzodiazepines, I think. Yeah. So this has been out for so long and they've known for so long. So one of the many things that I find very uh, interesting about documentary is that um, there's a history lesson. So he does mention like it was um, invented somewhere in the 50s or whatnot. And then in 1961, there was an experiment um, and they force fed Librium, which is the first benzodiazepine um, invented. Mm. And, And they put the inmates on that for two months and then they yanked them off and then uh, some of them had seizures and a lot of them had like very bizarre you know acute withdrawal situations so mm-hmm. they there was a warning already and obviously no one you know listened and they went on to produce valium the second benzo and they mm. just promoted it anyway knowing what it could do to people 
I know that is so bad. It's like, wow, people are having seizures and there are there are huge risks to these medications. It's like you'd think that medication was given out and tested and the doctors are like, no, there's no risks here. It's completely safe. Whereas with benzos, I mean, there are so many risks and they've known that. And I just I don't understand why they are still prescribed and they're not completely banned like we were saying before you know only only used in crisis situations in a hospital by a doctor yeah definitely and i think they they make uh, such valid points for example they estimate and they don't know this for sure that up to 30% can have really bad withdrawals and seeing that these, you know, drugs are being prescribed massively throughout the world. And I think that one of the professors is saying like, if we could predict in advance who will suffer a great deal and who won't, we can, you know, reserve the benzodiazepines for the people that won't suffer, but we can't predict it. So we have to look at the totality of it all. And I was like, yeah, because of that, if we just stick to the four weeks maximum, like maximum, mm. we wouldn't have any of these issues and then there's another group that takes you know their bottle of benzodiazepines to the grave and we won't know if they will get sick because they just they never try to withdraw from them i know and that's exactly it there's like such a huge broad span in this there's like some old ladies that are still taking it seemingly okay but then there's so many there's so many side effects to a benzodiazepine they might be having pain in their body or I don't know, all sorts of issues that they might not have connected it to the benzo, but actually it right. could be. Or there's people like you and me who get quite sick quite quick. I mean, it didn't take long. It took about a month for me to really start getting really sick. And I have actually met people who have taken it for two weeks. Uh, lorazepam in particular thinks it's a short-acting one. And afterwards, you know, just after those two weeks stopping it and their anxiety being so unnaturally high, um, and then obviously starting that roundabout, oh my God, I need to take it to not have anxiety and then getting into this, into this absolute mess. Um, so there is, there is just like a huge span of people. And that's why doctors can, can say to you, oh, but I've got somebody, you know, on this, who's 90 years old and they're fine. It's like, well, are they fine? <laughs> and also yeah, really, are they? Yeah. You know, there's like a trillion people like me and you who like, yeah, suffer endlessly. Yeah, and I think one of the good things that you point out is that I think a lot of people get paradoxical reactions to benzodiazepines unaware. Mm. Uh, the lormetazepam, which it's, it's, I think it relates to lorazepam a lot, um, but I was dosing myself like three or four times a night because I wasn't sleeping. So I never had the intradose thing, but I never really felt well or rested. It didn't knock me out like it was supposed to. And I think when I you know, switch to the fluorazepam, which is a long acting benzodiazepine. I, I thought I was doing well on that, but now with the gift of hindsight, it's like, no, I stabilized on that benzo because it's long acting. But I think there's a, a whole group of people that are being prescribed benzodiazepine and they don't really react well to it or, and they get really sick really fast. Mm. And then we're all, so also if I were to be a GP and if I would even prescribe a benzodiazepine to a patient, I would check in with them within a few days, like, how did you react? And if someone's like, oh, I feel super anxious, I'm not sleeping still, then I'm like, okay, then benzos are not the drug for you. You need to get off now, you know? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Like, 
Oh, and, and, and there's just such a fine line of the whole benzo thing because the side effects can mimic mental illness and you can start not sleeping. And, you know, if you went in for anxiety initially, they could be like, well, this is your anxiety disorder. And it's just such a mess. And there's, there's so, it's so easy for doctors to say that it's you and blame you. Um, and I mean, yeah, if you're having unnatural anxiety and insomnia and it's getting worse, it's definitely the benzo. There's no other reason for that. Um, yeah, and it's that's why I feel like God. This documentary, I mean, it covers so much, but it's just the fact that like none of my, no one I know has seen this. You know, no one knows about this. And when I when I stopped taking my benzo um, and then was ended up in horrendous withdrawal, you know, I was called a drug addict, and I had friends of mine taking me to Narcotics Anonymous. And you know, the fact that benzos are listed as addictive, it doesn't mean you're addicted, like I'm trying to get high. It means that your body becomes so dependent that you can't function without it. And still, I mean, this was a common misunderstanding between my friends and my family that they they genuinely thought that I'd been taking this as a like addiction. Um, yeah. And that's where like, I feel like the drug companies get away with this kind of thing because they put the word addictive on there, but they don't necessarily, they should really say dependent. I mean, the, the two words are very different. And I think that's that's another reason why maybe this is still happening is because the drug companies haven't really explained exactly what these drugs do. And for some reason, doctors are still handing them out. <laughs> yeah. But I think as a world, as a society, um, I think the whole concept of needing a drug, if you don't mm. take the drug, you could die or go into horrendous withdrawal and you want to die. Um, I think that concept is not very clear to people. I yeah. Before yeah. all of this, before I knew all of this, I never knew there would be a drug that you could die or get crazy by not taking it. So mm. it's very that the heroin and the ecstasy or whatever drugs they're out there these days, I don't know. But it's like, okay, you're taking these drugs to get that high and you want to get that high and you're pursuing the high. But if you don't take it, you won't die. But maybe some addicts would go for that high. We don't go for that high and we have to take it in order not to die. I never heard anything yeah. like that before in my entire life with benzos. Obviously, if I knew, I would have never quit cold turkey. I mean, there's so many things I would have done differently, mm -hmm. but I never there was no warning, nothing for me like, oh, you could potentially die if you yeah. uh, quit cold turkey or, um, you know, stop rapidly because all mm -hmm. my insert pamphlets say gradually. Now, what is gradually? That's like very not even slow. They don't even say slow in my country. It's just gradually. So what does mm. that I mean? I was thinking I'm going from 90 to 30 to 15 to zero, that's gradual within a few weeks, but that was way too fast, obviously. So, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's just crazy also. how this works. And also, you know, I've heard here and there people saying like, oh, it, it, you know, it, it seems that benzodiazepines are harder to withdraw from than heroin. And then Professor later saying, oh, you know, heroin, people get off it all the time. They go to jail and they have, they go in cold Turkey, they get some help, but they get off. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of true, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, you know, you know, it makes me think like, maybe I should have asked for heroin instead of benzodiazepines. Me too. I, could, I should have just taken heroin, honestly, because <laughs> yeah. like, you know, the, the damage cause, I think you're, you're so right. It's like, 
it's so unco- like you can't even imagine that this could even happen you know if it hadn't happened to you you'd be like okay that's not true that can't happen to people in terms of getting on a drug and then literally being so dependent on it like you'd stop taking it and you just can't function you've become unwell you look like you're having a psychotic breakdown and then you you know it's just it's crazy um what can happen and and your body set on fire and yeah, your body just... set on fire and all these crazy things happen and yeah and then the doctors are there being like oh no this this can't this can't be the case and it's so it's so scary and it's so it's such a horrible place to be where you're in that place you've got the doctor saying it's you um and you're going on facebooks and you're googling and you're finding all these support groups and there's and you're finding that there's other people out there and then you find professor you know ashton who has got this whole tapering thing and you're like what the hell and like I was saying before how I think I I, I did try and show the Professor Ashton's um, tapering uh, thing and to a doctor and they were just like what I'm not following this like you don't know what you're talking about you can just stop Valium you know I think at that point I was on Valium because they tried to cross me over do a straight switch and I was having the most awful experience, uh, obviously, because you're not supposed to do a straight switch. And um, yeah, they were just saying to me, oh, you can just stop Valium tomorrow. This is obviously something to do with you. And I was showing them all this research. And I was just like, why? There's, yeah, there's two worlds. There's like people who are trying to make a difference, like Professor Ashton and those people making the documentary. And then there's our medical world who just seem to be ign- completely ignoring it. Yeah, definitely. I really feel like the Ashton Manual should be in medical training, Mm -hmm. even if it's like a paragraph. Um, I don't know how you feel about this, but sometimes I feel like for me and you, you know, we we come across so many people, way too many people that have had a situation like us, unfortunately. Um, But it seems to me like maybe sometimes this is my feeling that it's like, oh, maybe a few people get really ill and that's just collateral damage. Mm. yeah exactly like oh well you know it doesn't work for everyone but I'm sure the people that it does work for way outweighs you know the others or whatever whereas there are so many people suffering and it's not just benzos you know because now I'm bloody poly poly drugged on three medications uh you know I've I've then gone into the antidepressant world and the antipsychotic world and each different world has a huge amount of people who are harmed, who are having terrible side effects. You know, one girl who had um, a single mother who took metazapine, which is an antidepressant, she took it for like three days. She had a paradoxal reaction, like you were saying, you know, a lot of people can have a paradoxal reaction, which is, for people listening, is obviously just like an allergic reaction to, mm-hmm. to, the, to the drug. And then she had severe I mean I suppose I would call it brain injury where she couldn't stand up and she was bedridden and is currently still bedridden from taking an antidepressant for three days so you know there are these people and this does happen to people and the doctors so casually hand them out that's what I find so disturbing because Mm -hmm. obviously I went in for tinnitus as did you and there are so many other things that they could have suggested for us you know like therapy to get through you know help you sleep better with your tinnitus maybe listening to some music when you go to bed or you know there's just other things that you could tell somebody rather than giving them 
something far worse than heroin. And like what you were saying with heroin as well is, you know, you go through a detox with heroin and then it's kind of done. I mean, you have that feeling, I guess, that you want it. And, but it's it's not like that with a benzo. I never had that feeling of, oh, my God, I really need to take my benzo. I only had it because I was getting withdrawal symptoms, meaning horrific shit going on. Mm-hmm. Like scary shit. And you're like, oh, my God, OK, I'll try and take this pill to try and take it away. And in the end, it just didn't work. But. I wanted nothing to do. Yeah, I wanted nothing to do with the pills at some point when they switched me over to the Valium, which I responded very poorly to because there was no crossover, but a switch over Mm -hmm. too high of a dose of that. And then you're in basically an acute withdrawal from your original benzo. And -hmm. I remember, look, I'm going to call Turkey. I'm going to nail this because I don't know. I knew nothing. I was like, maybe I'll have a few bad days or weeks. I don't know. And I actually put all of my benzodiazepines in another room like I'm not going to be taking them. I don't think I'm going to have an unquote weak moment where I'm going to try and take it because like you yeah. say, it's different heroin. But then I, you know, I almost died after two or three days, not taking a single benzo after, I don't know, five years, whatnot, high mm. dosage. And then I almost died. And then I had this kind of moment where I was like, okay, I am actually dying here. And then I had to take the benzo, which I didn't want. I was like, even in my sickest moment, um, basically having a heart attack or something, mentally unwell, seizures, grand mal seizures, I think. I was standing at the my all of the pills and was like, hmm, I really don't want to take these pills, but apparently I'm dying. So I was actually kind of thinking it through. And then I took 15 milligrams of fluorazepam and within half hour, slept for a couple of hours. And then, you know, that's when my aha moment started like, oh, I'm, I'm dying without these pills. What is that? Like, so mm-hmm. weird. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I mean, and during my withdrawal, you know, the hell that we go through or have been through. And I got so angry at some point. I was so frustrated that I was bound to these pills now that I wanted nothing more to do with. I just threw the pills across the room at some point. Um, yeah. I want nothing. You know, I'm taking uh, currently I'm on five milligrams of diazepam slash Valium. I take it. Because I have to, but it's not that I'm obsessed with like, oh, and I want that Valium or I really need the Valium. No, it's like uh, it's oxygen for me now because I'll die without it, but I want nothing more to do with it. Yes, no, completely, completely. And I think it is a really hard thing for people to grasp because I think as soon as you say the words medication to people, like people just shut off. And I think before before this happened to me, I just had no idea. I didn't even want to know about medication. And there's this real kind of like collective consciousness with people. And I I notice it in people that there's only very few people that have really taken interest in my story and my withdrawal story, like my friends or, you know, who've really actually tried to work out what happened. Um, and, And a lot of people are very happy just to not just to not care it's not happening to them so why do they care they're just going to get going to get on with their lives yeah Um, there there is really like that and I think also because you're not a doctor so people are like well she's not a doctor so she she's obviously just crazy and bitter and just talking about you know ranting about medications (laughs) with like some sort of weird mental health issue whereas actually ironically what I'm saying is true And actually, I know more than a lot of doctors about all these medications. And there's this huge gap of like misinformation, like doctors don't know how to taper us off. They know nothing about what these drugs do. And this just keeps happening. And And I yeah. And I think as long because, you know, 
I, I guess I would say that we were on quote regular people before any like th those mm. people that don't seem to understand. Um, we know heroin, we know cocaine. There's been plenty of movies and stuff. Um, there is no narrative for something that you pick up at the doctors that it's, you know, um, promoted as safe. Um, if my doctor would have told me like you could potentially die and um, you know, once you're on it, um, you will be cognitively impaired. <laughs> Blah, blah, blah. Um, this is what it will do to your whole body. Potentially, I would have never taken it, obviously. But I think that there's so many people that don't know about this kind of dependency. I never knew about this. I thought addicts were seeking a high. Um, that's all I knew. A addiction. I did not know the concept of physical dependence. I had no clue about that. And I think that's where the gap really is. And also how it goes. You go to your doctor. You think you're getting help. You think you're taking a safe drug. And then this happens. It's so surreal. It's like a, a, another multiverse. It's like I I'm not a conspiracy thinker at all, at all, but I do understand like this is such a subworld that nobody knows, seems to know about, or just us. So it's like, why, why yeah. is it there's this connection to my experience that sadly a lot of people have the same experience being set on fire, wanting to die, mm. wanting nothing, these medications, and doctors don't believe you and people don't believe you, it's very, very difficult. And then I think that's why documentaries like this and our podcast and whatever that we do, trying to raise awareness, I think this is a very good thing that is happening. And I hope at some point the world will wake up, like Professor Later say, we need a wake-up call. Yes, we needed a wake-up call back then in 2016. But before that, there's so many people that went before us, sadly, and maybe took their own lives that mm -hmm. already went the hell that we went through it's just crazy i mean with no doubt there are people taking their own lives every day um going through this a hundred percent you know people are either left in withdrawal called crazy deserted by their family and friends which is happened what happened to me um you know and if you're in that place of complete aloneness and you're like well there's no way out there's no cure because you know there is no cure for benzo withdrawal apart from time and Christ, you told so many different things. And even in the Benzo forums, no one really knows. I mean, the, everyone's learning by pe through people's experiences. But actually, everyone's experience is so different. You know, the reason, yeah. you know, I stabilized after seven months, eight months off the drug um, in severe withdrawal by reinstating a tiny bit of it. And, you know, at no point before had that helped. And for some reason that seventh or eighth month out I stabilized to a place of pure stabilization I mean it's actually insane it because is before it that is. I was completely psychotic pacing pacing and crying you know 24 7 every day 24 7 so yeah there is no it's, it's a really scary place to be because like there is no cure and I, I just really want the drugs banned and so this doesn't happen to anyone I mean, do yeah, we really I, need this instant fix for anxiety? Do we really need this instant fix for insomnia? Like there are so many other ways we can do this naturally. Yeah. The only personal thing that I see where that can be beneficial is for an emergency. And I feel mm. like that should not be GPs. So let's say, for example, whatever is happening and you haven't slept in two months and you're going towards a psychotic break because you haven't slept or weeks or something like that. You yeah. could go to 
ER and they can give you one or two tablets for two days or three, I don't know, something very short. And then like, okay, but this is, you need to go and talk to somebody. You need help. This is a temporary, this is a fix for one or two days. So you can sleep after not, but it's not, that's it. Three days, three days that, that you know, this option is no longer available because these drugs are dangerous. And I think as a patient, if you would have to get a specific drug at a hospital or an ER, maybe Mm. it sounds more, severe you know if if a doctor's like you know here you are it's safe and just take it whenever i give it to all ladies or whatever that they say you know um it's it's a different situation so um so and maybe for like a, a surgery or something because i do believe that they're sometimes used for a surgery yeah. so that you forget yeah. so so it's helpful for that but only like in a hospital er setting like you know emergency setting not to a, like at a gp and gps mm. i'm sorry There may be good GPs out there, but some of them fuck up and they don't know what they're prescribing. And once you are physically dependent, they don't know how to get you off. So it shouldn't Mm -hmm. be at GPs, in my opinion. I mean, when I was in withdrawal and I was saying I was in intense pain and I had shooting pains all over my body, they were like, why don't you take gabapentin? Take gabapentin, that's a painkiller. Gabapentin is another drug that is called addictive. By addictive, it's the same thing. You become dependent and there they were just handing out some other addictive drug. I mean, it's absolute madness, the whole the, thing. Yeah, I remember because I, I guess like you, I went in for, hey, I want to taper my um, benzodiazepine. And I went in with just a benzo. I was just, you know, physically dependent on one benzo. I came out during this whole process. And luckily, I never was on them for very long with Seroquel, which is catiapine. They gave me the mirtazapine, um, all this junk. And I specifically asked them to if they were going to prescribe me something. And I was just very gullible and thinking that maybe they wanted to help and give me stuff to help with the, you know, getting off of the benzos, I specifically told them I wanted nothing addictive or that was going to make me dependent. And still they gave me that crap. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what the hell? And then also, like you say, once you're stuck on it and then you start having these side effects, it's very easy for a doctor to then be like, oh, well, clearly you're just insane. And then you're like, shit, I need somebody to prescribe this to me. And I mean, my NHS doctor won't prescribe it to me. He doesn't want the responsibility. So I've had to go, on pr- I've had to go private um, and get, this, get these drugs privately so I can mm-hmm. take off them. And it's not that I'm a drug addict. It's literally that I cannot function without it. Right. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we're all stuck in this same horrible boat together, although mm. I think we're, we're doing it as gracefully as we can. So about Shane Kelly, who, you know, I, I felt bad for him because he has protracted withdrawal. He mm. seems to still suffer from symptoms because he was prescribed benzodiazepines. But I do feel that he brings a certain fierceness into this documentary, which I like. He's like very like a crime against humanity. Yes. Very fierce. I, 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 I live. I, I, I loved it. I really love it too. And I love his tone and his voice and how, you know, you listen to him and you're like, yeah, I'm taking, I'm taking you seriously because he's like, he's got that kind of voice. 
Definitely, so, definitely. And also in terms of, I think he says, um, you know, governments are responsible. Um, the pharmaceuticals are responsible. Like there's so many cogs in this situation. Um, I've been actually thinking about that lately, but I really think that governments should act because, you know, as we said, people lose their income, their jobs, they, they you know, they need medical care, psychiatric care. So I think it's really up to governments to make sure that this is just, you know, being more monitored or banned something. I think it's in their best interest as well to protect people from getting ill of a benzodiazepines. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't know. In my lifetime, I would just really like to see this changed and the whole way mental health is treated by our, by our Western like doctors just is just so disturbing it's like it's there's a pill for everything yeah yeah and just not being told what this pill actually does yeah <laughs> because yeah. it doesn't help with sleep on the long term it does not help with anxiety it just makes it worse like you said in the previous take like you're cursed by a witch like hey <laughs> you know take this pill it will help you only to come back you know the problems a thousand fold um so that's how insidious and evil these drugs are in my opinion mm. Mm. yeah 100% 100% but I will I really enjoy the documentary and I'm glad that you you know you showed it to me because it's something that I can now show other people. I think it's really, it's a really, really good, really informative. And I'm going to put it on my website, beating, beating the Um, So, you know, if there are the people out there who have got family and friends, just not willing to believe them or their doctor, maybe, you know, you can be like, watch this documentary. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's really good about your website. It's, it's kind of like a hub, right, of all these mm. like information. And I think you're doing a great job. And that's the great thing with the internet. That's the great thing about podcasting. So we can really bring everything, you know, together. Like there have been people that have been warning about this all this time. And we're just bringing that together. I think it's great that you're doing it. Thank you so much for doing this episode with me. And I will yeah. speak to you soon. Great. Love you talking to you. Okay. Speak soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.